We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the show. What an incredible National Signing Day for the Gators. I'm James DiVirgilio. Alongside Alan Williams, we have a fantastic recruiting day special for you today. We're going to talk with Tom Lemming, the national recruiting expert for CBS, and Blake Alderman, the Gator expert on recruiting. That's all coming up right now on the Gator Nation football podcast. James, it was a really big finish for the Gators on National Signing Day. How did you feel coming into the signing day and how are you feeling right now? Well, coming into the signing day, meaning the week before, I think there was a little bit of the sky was falling mentality. I was texting Blake, who we'll talk to later. I was talking with all of our friends on our, our now infamous text thread. And that ranged from like extreme optimism with one of our friends, right, to like me, who was on the other end that was thinking, I, I don't know about this. We need what seems to be a miracle close. And I left Wednesday evening feeling extremely encouraged for several reasons, which we're going to really unpack in this show. But right now, I'm feeling very good. I feel a lot of positive momentum. I feel happy with the especially the, the increase in overall quality players that we added that we did not have a week ago today. Yeah, it was definitely a change. I think at some point when uh, one of the recruits decommitted, we dropped in one of the rankings to like 34th. And it seemed it would take like a miracle to get us into the top 15. And then this class finished, you know, by most rankings in at nine or 10, which seems like a miracle. Uh, so, I was looking at our previous notes, like, what do we want to see from this recruiting class? And it was like, top 10, question mark, defensive tackles, question mark. And this class hit on both of those. So it feels like a huge win, even if it's not the elite, elite class that maybe some Gator fans would want us to be at right now. Who knows if we can get there in the future. But it does feel like a big win. It was a big finish on National Sign Day, which is kind of interesting because, you know, we had some classes under Muschamp that finished around five or somewhere in the top 10, but people were hoping it was going to finish one, two or three. And so it felt kind of disappointing because there wasn't this big finish, this big close, as people like to say, whereas this class was in the twenties and finished at nine feels like a huge improvement, a lot of momentum versus maybe thinking that you're going to finish at one and then finishing at five. 
Yeah, psychologically, that that's absolutely the way that it is. And I think we talked about on last year's episode that we needed to finish in the top 10. That was that was James's said goal. <clears throat> of course, I would have loved for it to have been a top five. I think we need to get there. But my most important scoreboard rubric, which has been talked about quite a bit from me on this show, is I needed to see positive trend. Positive trend. McElwain's first class was in the 20s. His second class was in the middle teens. This class consensus rank is right around 10. So that is, in fact, a positive trend. I think that is really, really significant when you look at coaches in their first several years at a program. I feel very encouraged by this. I think you should as well, even if you find yourself being disappointed with us. Hey, this still historically is not a Gator class that it should be. That has a lot of merit. But the trend and what McElwain is doing right now, coming from me, someone who's been really uncomfortable with his recruiting level, I think is illustrating that he understands how important it is. He's shown an ability to get these players to come on board. And he's done that while having a dumpster fire of an offense. So I think he's at the table, as we look into next year, for a very interesting run, especially if we can have some on-the-field results, which is really important. So I stand today very encouraged with where we we're seemingly going. Yeah, it was interesting on Tuesday night. I was lamenting the fact that if we, you know, we finished even as high as like 13 or 14, it wasn't going to do much to change the narrative for us. And college football is interesting because it's the sport that is most connected to narrative and momentum. It matters your perception in a lot of ways. And so I was thought, you know, we're going to maybe finish. I thought we could still finish around 14 or 15 and you know, that would be a solid class, but it wasn't going to do anything to quell the noise in the system. Whereas this finish getting up to nine or 10 really changes like the story that people are telling about this program moving into the off season. I think it quiets a lot of fears of certain Gator fans, at least for the moment. And I don't think McElwain enters into the fall with as many questions hovering over him, which is really significant for him and the program. And it's funny what that slight change from like 14 to nine in some sense really provides for this program in terms of its overall narrative. So I know McElwain was really excited about that. If you saw his press conference, he was pretty giddy about the whole process. Um, And yeah, really excited to, to finish and close as strong as they did. Yeah, it wound up just being a banner signing day. I know that I had several friends text me that it was the most fun signing day they've been a part of. And and that's certainly due to recent memory. Urban had phenomenal classes with some exciting signing days. But this was the one where you were the underdog running the race. Well, they were walking a tightrope there, really. And, and right. And you, you finished the way you dreamt of finishing. Uh, and that was nice. And and you, you said, you know, we like to talk about things at a, at a macro strategic level. This has been a weakness Technically, the 10th ranked class is still a weakness, and we'll, we'll analytically look at that some more. But this answered a lot of questions, and I think that's why McElwain was so giddy. The primary question for me with McElwain wasn't his coaching. I think on field, I've seen some really good things. I've continued to say I really like his scheme. I think he can do things in the long run. I like his vision on a lot of things. The recruiting was something that was really holding me back. And that's one reason why I'm feeling very encouraged. And I think that when you answer a big question like that, and you're a guy like McElwain, I think even for himself, he's proving to himself that he can recruit. We have to remember that. He hasn't had to recruit like this. So in a way, he's saying, I can do this. I knew I could, and now I did it. 
And so he's feeling the momentum wave as well, which is which is only going to to further their recruiting efforts into this season. Yeah, it was interesting watching the Gators coverage from the national media, some of the bigger sites. I looked on Tuesday night at a lot of like, you know, headlines or storylines going into National Signing Day, and I saw several where predicting like disappointment for the Gators. Like they, they were going to be the team that kind of flops when you looked at the rankings afterward that was going to be most disappointing. But then on the other side of signing day, I think every list I saw that had some kind of winners and losers um, paradigm that the Gators were winners on signing day because of the way they finished and closed. So like we said, really flipped the script on the narrative heading into the offseason. It, it's so far, it, it looks good. When we're going to talk about some of the bigger pieces as we go on to the show, we're going to talk with Tom Lemming, and we're specifically going to really chat with him about, you know, what does this class look like at a coaching level? Is McIlwain doing enough? As Gator fans, should we feel good about this class? And then we're also going to talk in the next episode with Blake Alderman about what specifically did we get in this class? Who's in this class? Who should you know about? How does this look compared to other classes around the state? And in between those times, Alan and I are going to give you the analytical points as far as what we think is actually going on. Uh, break down recruiting into tiers for you. Just how far ahead is Alabama when you look at everyone else? And put into context kind of where we are right now at a talent level on the field uh, as we head into a crucial, crucial season in 2017, where the Gators have a chance, I think, to vault themselves back into state prominence. Excited to welcome to the show Tom Lemming. He is CBS Sports Network's recruiting expert. You can catch him throughout the season breaking down the latest recruiting news on the Lemming Report on CBS Sports Network. Tom, welcome to the program. No, it's great to be on. Great to be anywhere now after signing day. At least I keep my head above water right now. Yeah, we appreciate you taking a few moments. So let's jump right in and let me ask you, what are your overall thoughts on UF's class this year? You know what? I think it's a very athletic class. A lot of people, you know, probably wasn't up to where Florida State was this year, but not many schools were. And I think a lot of times they're compared to Florida State. But overall, it's a very athletic class. They finished strong and uh, from top to bottom, just real good athletes. Almost every single one of them I have visited with in person and came away really impressed with the majority of them. Is this class good enough for a third-year coach at UF? Is this a strong enough class? Is this what Florida fans should have expected? Well, no, it's never as much, as not only with Florida, but all the major powers, it's never as much as the fans expected. They all expect everyone to finish number one, but I think it is a real good class, and I think it's a good class to build up towards next year, too, where there's an awful lot of ballplayers in Florida. But the closing uh, the Gators did, I think, uh, kind of appease most of the fans and made them kind of uh, excited about the 2017 season. So when you look at coaching trends recruiting-wise, a lot is made of, okay, year one they finished in the 20s, year two they finished in the teens, year three they finished in the top 10. Does that momentum, does that carry over from year to year to the, the recruits in the in the future years, or is that sort of something just the fans care about? Oh, you know what? It's I think it's both. I think it does carry over. I think the fans care about it. The, the players, what I've noticed, I've been doing this 38 years, the ball players think of only three things. How many guys you put into the NFL, how great your facilities are, and how good-looking the girls are on campus. It's usually the parents thinking the academics. But also I think the players like the trend, and I think perception is the key word in recruiting. If the perception of the program is heading north, then the, then the recruits see that. And they want to join the bandwagon. That's why Alabama has a ball player that doesn't mind gray shirt, even though he had offers from 50 different schools. 
because uh, the perception of Alabama is the program that everybody wants to go to, and they're sending more players to the NFL. So as long as you keep that perception uh, heading north in a positive way, then I think the ball players are going to want to jump on board. And what I know during all my travels, and I always come to Florida several times during the year, Florida Gators are really the state school. You know, you know, Florida State kind of controls the northern part of Miami, the southern part. But when you talk to the majority of the people, it's they're, they're Gator fans for the most part. And I think it's still just like Ohio State and Ohio and USC and Los Angeles, even though UCLA argues that it's really a USC territory. And I think when Florida's doing everything right, the state of Florida is really the, the Gator territory. So let me ask you, we were talking about momentum. How, in, how important is signing day itself in terms of momentum? Is that the thing that is most fresh in people's minds, so that's what matters the most? Yeah, because, you know, it's not that important. See, now, if Florida had signed all their guys two weeks or later, some of the uh, Internet sites probably would not have ranked them as high. Uh, it comes down to the end. They're all trying to make money, you know, and get the fans clanging on this guy. So the guys that aren't committed make the Internet sites probably the most money because people want to keep finding out what they're doing. So they keep pushing and pushing it. And those guys become great. I, I do remember there was a kid named Gary Berry. This is maybe 20 years ago out in the state of Ohio. And he waited two weeks after signing day. He was a good DB. I put him on the second team USA Today team. So he wasn't great, but he was good. Came down to Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Notre Dame. Every day, USA Today and all the papers were writing stories about him. He became the greatest player of all time. Two weeks later, when he signed with Ohio State, and he wound up playing just a little bit, never was a great ball player. But it shows you the power of um, – the, the media when they can build up a ball player, uh, especially the ones that are uncommitted. Some schools were quiet. Clemson was very quiet. They only had about 15 commitments, but they have a real good class, but their ball, their ball players had committed a long time ago. So they didn't get that kind of push at the end that the people were saying how great they were doing and everything else. And schools like USC and Florida state that had re- and Florida had real good closing days on signing day, um, got that major publicity push that other people were really looking for. Ohio state didn't get anybody but yet they finished second with a fantastic class, but there was no publicity really for it the last couple of days. And does that publicity carry over to next year's athletes? Do the high school kids now think, ooh, Florida closed strong, I feel that momentum? It does for a while, but not when they're ready to announce, usually at the end of the year. What happens is most of the ball, you'll see a lot of ball players commit in the summer. They'll go to, they'll visit campuses and they'll start, summer gets a lot. And then, the fall turns everything around. Say if Florida gets off to a great start, everyone's going to want to play for the Gators. But if they lose, you know, two or three of the first five or six games, the momentum stops right there and the ballplayers start looking around. Even if they're committed, you see a little bit happened to Notre Dame this year when they had a bad year. Five of their best players jumped ship after being committed the entire year because they had a bad year. They lost that momentum and never regained it. And uh, that's what happens with a losing season. So I think the key is having a real good 2017 year because, like I said, even if they're committed, uh, there's no there, there's no uh, assurity that they're going to stay with that team. Most of them will jump ship because ball players have about a six month uh, memory, and uh, that memory uh, closes pretty quick if the team gets off to a bad start. You mentioned recruiting rankings, and much is made of this, so I'm I'm curious and excited to hear your answer. Uh, how hard is it? to rank the players and we know it's obviously difficult but seeing the difference between the services and more importantly how much stock can we put in recruiting rankings like alan and i like to use the composite rankings to get some sort of index consensus but is that even a little bit foolish is there really any true way to to know the difference between number 50 and number 200 
Not really, because they normally don't play against each other. And the people that are doing the ranking, and I actually go see everybody in person. I still, you know, I'm in over my head at times when you're talking about over 3,000 players. That's why J.J. Watt got zero stars from the Internet sites. And I think uh, when, you, when you look at all the big stars uh, that are out there, uh, most of them, you know, got one or two or three stars. And then the, guy, the five-star ball players, which was a Peyton Manning who I gave five-star to, um, you, you, you kind of pump, beat your chest and say, look at that, I gave him five stars, but then you forget about Barry Sanders, who I gave only two and a half stars to. So <laughs> you, uh, you, you get humble real quick in this business. And mainly what I notice, the stars are given to ball players that have a lot of offers from the major schools. If you get five stars, that means you don't get five stars unless Alabama or USC or Ohio State offer you. And I think that's got a lot to do with it. And that's why they're so askew. And that's why sometimes you really can't go by the stars. I would I would respect it more if they would give stars to ballplayers after they see them as freshmen or sophomores, give them five stars without any offers yet. And then you would say, well, these guys have really done their homework. But they wait for the colleges to offer and then um, see how far they're pushing for them before they rank the ballplayers. And that's why you can get be wrong in a lot of different guys. And Mark Jackson, I gave four stars to when I said Boynton Beach. I should have given him five. But when I went down to Boynton, he didn't have the superpowers chasing him. And that's, even I get caught into that mix sometimes. And you really got to look at the athletic ability and project ballplayers at times, and that's almost impossible to do. So the way it is now, I guess, is about the only way you can actually do it. Fans want to see rankings. Sometimes I see guys with different points. He's got 1,390. That's, that's almost a ridiculous ranking because <laughs> who gives the points to this guy? Have you seen the guy in Oakland, California, as opposed to the guy in uh, um, Valdosta, Georgia? No. So how do you give them points and all that? But I do think star rankings is – more mainly for the fans, and it's sort of a uh, a way to kind of keep them in line because everybody wants one through one to three hundred or one through four hundred rankings. But the way I see it, and I've been wrong many times too, is it's and it's an uh, an imperfect science, and, and there's no way you can actually tell until they. I saw what Nick Saban said uh, on our show yesterday. He goes, he doesn't go by the rankings. He tells the players as soon as they get there, forget your star rankings, forget the way everybody talked about you, and just play to start at one of the positions and you'll be okay. And I think that's a good way to, to approach it because these are ball players that have, um, and I've been doing it since 78, 79. It was a smaller group, but I remember Dan Marino was a kind of a cocky guy that first year <laughs> in high school. And I interviewed him because uh, he was getting all the publicity along with John Elway and Eric Dickerson, that class of 79, but there weren't nearly as many because we didn't, there's still 3000 guys getting full rides, but we didn't, uh, hit most of them. We only hit maybe the top 100 back in those days. Nowadays, we're hitting all 3,000. So all 3,000 think they're special people. They love the announcements. I saw one guy yesterday pulling off three different shirts before he actually made his announcement, which is sort of ridiculous. But it's because of the attention that myself and everyone else give these players. So, yes, when you're out scouting, what are you looking for in a player that would cause you to think that he's special? You know, that's a good question because I've changed my philosophy over the years. Uh, especially at top 100, and I tried to do it all top 300, but I'll go see 2,000 in person. But I like to sit down with the ball player. First of all, see if he's the size he says he is, which most players aren't. They're almost an inch shorter, sometimes two or three inches shorter. And uh, you sit with them, and then I like to sit with the top 100 players with their coach and the player to watch film and get a collective opinion when I'm doing it. But also when I talk to the ball player, I try to find out how important football is. Because a lot of the ball players, it's a means to an end. They like to get an education. They think they're going to the NFL, but how about work ethic? And I'll ask coaches about it. And when you sit down one-on-one with the high school coach, 
they'll give you an honest appraisal. Well, you know, he needs to work. He's not a real hard worker. He, he's multi-talented. He can do this. He can throw the ball. He can run. But he doesn't work hard. I always make a note of that because normally those ball players will not make it, no matter how talented they are. If they don't have the great work ethic, if they're not driven to become NFL players, they won't be. They may just be all right college players, but it's the guy that's driven. Maybe the five foot eleven linebacker that's a driven ball player that becomes a star, or the six foot one defensive tackle becomes a star, or the six foot Drew Brees type quarterback or Russell Wilson. These guys were driven in high school. When you talk to Russell Wilson's coach in Richmond, he was a driven athlete, and you knew he was overcome his lack of height uh, somewhere, and he did it in North Carolina State and then Wisconsin. So we like to look at recruiting in essentially tiers. We talk a lot on the program about how the same schools have won national championships and they have a certain percentage of top 150 players, or you could look at a tier and say that teams one and two are in tier one, and then you know teams two through 12 are generally in tier two, and so on and so forth. But one thing that really jumps out in the data is that Alabama is so far ahead of everyone else, if you kind of use that methodology, that if you're running like a 400-meter sprint, Alabama's finishing 15 seconds ahead of the second place finisher. How historically significant is Alabama's dominance and how much are they skewing sort of the recruiting results for everyone else? You're absolutely right. I have never seen anything like this. When I was starting out in the business, it was John Robinson at USC and Barry Switzer at Oklahoma that was dominating the recruiting scene. And then Lou Holtz in the mid to late eighties. And then Bobby Bowden, and, and the Miami coaches throughout the 90s and the uh, first part of last decade. And then Pete Carroll came along and did the same thing at USC. But I've never seen anything that like this, what, what Nick Saban has done over the past seven years, seven straight uh, recruiting titles. But I also noticed that because when I, when I tour uh, Alabama and I talk to Coach Saban there, they've got more people behind the scenes. They've got sort of an NFL type of uh, uh, front office there. And uh, they've got a room for freshmen, which means – 2020 ball players. They got people signed to watch nothing but 2020, and then people signed to watch 2019, 2018, and then this past year, 2017. They're on top of guys. Me being on the road for five months, I'm able to see which schools actually get out there and do the preliminary work. And you expect maybe the lesser known schools to do it because they have to beat the powerhouses. Because I've seen Maryland do it this year where they're on the road like crazy, and their name had been out there. But no one's out there more than Alabama. And look, you go into Florida, You'll, see, you'll always see Florida, Florida State, Miami mentioned, but you also always see Alabama. Same thing in Georgia, same thing in uh, the Carolinas. And now California, when I was out there, Alabama's name was popping up in California, which is mind-boggling to me that they'd be that far away as if they needed to be. But they become a national recruiting team because of that front office and because of the instant information they're getting on prospects. They even offered um, the player they got my, uh, I give out the Buckus Award every year to a linebacker and, this year I gave it to Dylan Moses at IMG Academy. And I saw Dylan as a seventh and eighth grader. Sean Payton gives me the Saints facilities. And I get everybody in Louisiana to meet down there every year in March. Dylan came out after his seventh grade year. He had already started on the varsity at the university lab. And Alabama had already offered him. They offered him before LSU did, who offered the next year as an eighth grader. So Alabama offered a seventh grader. And it turned out to be a great offer because it really came down to those two teams. And Alabama wound up with them because they had been at them for five years. And I think... Uh, hard work. I've, I've said this facetiously, but I kind of mean it. You show me a coach who's a prolific golfer, and I'll show you a lousy recruiter because recruiting has to be the coach's uh, uh, has to be their hobby nowadays. The money they're getting paid, 
I don't think they have much time for golfing or making speeches to alumni groups. Recruiting should be their focus. And uh, Pete Carroll, Mac Brown, uh, Phil Fulmer, Nick Saban, Irvin Meyer all told me the same thing. No matter how good of a coach you are, you win with impact players. And that's why Alabama has been winning on a consistent basis. They have more impact players than everyone else. That's incredible. That's an amazing story. Um, let me ask you a couple more questions about UF's class in particular. Who do you think the best recruit is in this class, in your opinion? Well, that's a good question because most of these guys I've seen in, in person. I really like Zach Carter. I went by Hillsborough High School about a year ago to see him, and I really thought he's got the length, the quick, violent hands, and the, the body to gain a lot more work. I really liked him a lot until signing day, you know, when they started landing some big-time players because to Daryl uh, Slayton, they, you know, the two tackles there at um, American Heritage, I was there Saturday, last Saturday at American Heritage, and I've been there a couple times this year. The team is absolutely loaded. And these guys looked like NFL tackles. They didn't have a lot of fat on their bodies. They were just massive people. Very impressed with both of those guys. Uh, Daquan Green is not a super big wide receiver. I went by Tampa Bay Tech. I remember his coach telling me that the best athlete he's ever had at Tech High School, they've got three or four this coming year that are real good, but nothing he felt like uh, Daquan. And uh, I would have to say that uh, James Robinson is probably the best athlete. I gave him five stars a year ago and liked him because he's got the body of an NFL player, and he's got the athletic ability. He's got the length and the and ability enough. Um, they could get him under control there at Florida. I think uh, he's going to be an impact player on either side of the ball because he could be a great safety also, maybe even grow into a linebacker. Looking at Florida's class, is there a, a sort of underrated or unheralded guy you think that could, that could make a significant impact that people aren't, especially the national recruiting rankings, aren't necessarily talking about or in love with? I was thinking maybe um, – uh, James Houston, the linebacker in American Heritage, because, you know, he got overshadowed by Pat Sertain Jr. And, and the tackles and all the other great players there at this year. And when you watch them on film, he makes more plays than anybody else on defense. So he's sort of an underrated on his own team, let alone the Florida recruiting class. I know you don't necessarily always update a team ranking, but have you ranked Florida's class this year, according to other classes, or at least in a general range? Yeah, I had I had Florida number twelve this year. Okay, I had them actually not. I had them nineteen. I moved them up to twelve after yesterday, and uh, um, I had Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, USC, Georgia, Florida State, and LSU. The top seven. I thought those seven separated themselves from the rest of the uh, country. And so you've been recruiting since, like you said, the late seventies. Are the athletes now that you're recruiting just significantly different? in mentality, attitude, desires than they were when you started? Yeah, and, and athletic ability, because I remember offensive linemen averaged two, 240 to 250 in 1979. Now they're at, well, almost all of them are over 300 pounds, and you can see that at almost every position with the uh, strength training and the coaching they're getting nowadays. They're better players. Attitude-wise, the great players are always the same. You know, They're kind of cocky, very confident. They've been already through the media blitz even back then those days, but it was a much smaller group that was, you know, you could probably mention that not even a hundred players, maybe 50 or 60 that were getting it. And most of it on a regional basis. Cause when I started, there was no national teams. Parade magazine was going, but really nothing else. And I remember traveling around the country and I talked about that's, I, I did a lot of radio shows back then because I was the only one actually visiting players nationally, but all, all they ever wanted to know really was what was regional Bob Trump in Cincinnati or, 
have Dowdy in New Orleans, always what was going on in their own area. But it really wasn't a lot of national recognition like the kids get nowadays. And the attention that maybe an average player gets, and that's what builds them up a little bit more. And I think I can understand why head coaches get a little upset when even their average players that are coming in their class are treated like kings by the media, and they have to bring them down, right? We had um, Houston Nuts, and um, we had a couple coaches on our set yesterday talking about what they had to do once they got the players on campus after all these this media blitzes, and they had to bring them down. And Byron, uh, or um, uh, BJ uh, Jones was uh, talking about when he was a player that usually the seniors took care of that by, uh, you know, making sure the freshmen understood they were just freshmen. Nowadays, because of social media, you can't do that because then the freshmen will post that they're being treated poorly by the varsity. <laughs> so uh, nowadays the ballplayers come on campus expecting to start. That's why you see a lot of transfers, a lot more now than you did back in the old days because the ball player and Here's one to keep an eye on. Hunter Johnson, I think, is one of the best quarterbacks in the country committed to Clemson. But next, he may even start this coming year at Clemson. However, the number one player in the country for the next year is Trevor Lawrence, who's already committed to Clemson, and he could come in. And I believe watching both of them, he might be better than Hunter. So it'll be interesting to see if a guy starts and maybe transfers the next year. I'm just jumping ahead. But those things have been happening a lot across the country, and it could happen at Clemson within a year or two. Well, Tom, we really appreciate you coming on. You're a legend in this field and loved hearing your insight into both the national scene and to Florida. So thanks so much for giving us some of your time. Well, my pleasure. Anytime, guys. Take care. So we talked a lot about recruiting rankings with Tom, and we even mentioned this concept of a tier system. If you're not a fantasy football player or baseball player or something else, you may not be familiar with what a tier system is. But it's actually statistically a really good way to look at some of the data to categorize just how far apart is team number one from team number two from team number three. And it's especially relevant given how dominant Alabama's recruiting levels have been. And to give you an example of what this tier will look like, you have Alabama as your number one or your top tier. And you have Ohio State as your number two recruiting school this year. But what you want to know is, is... Is Ohio State close to Alabama? Was their class in the same hemisphere? If they're running a race around a 400-meter track, is Ohio State one second behind Alabama, or are they half a lap behind, right? And that's what tiers try to categorize. And so you basically lump schools together where you feel like they're the same. And so you're going to say at a certain point, all of these runners are finishing this race almost at the same exact time. So whether you're number nine or number 15, you're kind of finishing the race at the same time. Very small differences between them. So it's helpful mentally to lump this together. And then Alan's going to walk us through a buddy of ours, Chris Musgrove, who painstakingly did the past four years of data on this uh, for us and and put these teams into tiers, adjusted their ranks. And it really clarifies a couple of things that we want to share with you today. We think you'll find it insightful on just how the recruiting has really been working in the past several years and this year, especially. Yeah, such an interesting concept because especially when – with recruiting rankings, people can lose their mind. It's like we finished 15th or oh gosh, we could have finished 13th and they're literally the same thing. It matters not. Or some teams might feel like we did really good at fourth. We're close to the number one team, but you could be not close at all. So this year was kind of interesting with like these kind of tiers. Cause Bama is in such a tier all by themselves. Uh, no one is really even close to them. Uh, Ohio state, is kind of in a tier by themselves and second place. And then there's a cluster of teams in what we call the third tier, <clears throat> including some of our rivals like UGA, FSU, LSU. 
And then there's a fourth tier, which UF is in with some of the teams like AM, Miami, Penn State. So it you don't want to get too high or low on where you're at with those recruiting rankings. But just to illustrate how far ahead Bama is, as Musgrove basically did these rankings over four year or even if I think he's got his fifth year in here now, if you, cause you mentioned a race, right? So if you're running around the track and you're like, Oh cool. I finished second, but you're a minute behind the previous guy. Congratulations. You finished second, but you still lost by a ton. So what he did with these point numbers, like every place is like worth 50 points. So in his system, Alabama basically finishes first and there's nobody in second through eighth place because they're so far behind. So really the second place team over the last five years, Ohio state is really in ninth because they're so far behind Bama and Ohio state recruits incredibly well, but Bama is so far ahead. And then UF, we would be in 18th place. So we're not really like, nine places behind Bama or 10 places behind Bama, really 18 places for behind Bama. And that's the team that you have to beat in the SEC title game. So even though the Gators closed really well and finished with a, you know, I think a really strong class, Bama kind of skews everything because they're so far ahead of everybody else. And they've been doing it for seven years or so. And as we looked at even this year's rankings, you know, we finished ninth or 10th, but the teams that we're competing against, there's still several teams ahead of us. The SEC is so strong in recruiting. You've got four to six SEC teams ahead of us, depending on what ranking system you're using, plus FSU. Does that give you pause still in terms of our place in the recruiting chain? It does. And that's what we've been hammering on. And this just crystallizes it. It's basically my argument is we have to get ourselves to tier two. You don't have to be tier one to beat Alabama. Clemson, is, is not a tier one recruiting school. They're a borderline tier three, tier four, but they won because they had an exceptional quarterback and then they had some other pieces that went with that. So you can win not being tier one. It's very, very hard to use data to back up ever winning as a tier four school where we currently are. Uh, that has not been done. Now this particular year, we're more in the tier three, but to bottom line this whole thing for you, the best way to think about this is every game Bama plays, and this part's simple, they have better talent than their opponent. And it's significant. That's what's important. Every game Ohio State plays, they have better talent than their opponent, but it's not as significant. Every game that LSU plays, and even Florida State plays, their talent level, it's much smaller. The difference between Florida State and LSU and us, it's, it's way smaller. And so that's where recruiting can really do wonders for you. Now, are we going to be Alabama? No, we're not. Alabama has an unprecedented run, as you've heard Tom mention on this on, on that, that previous interview, that no one is equal there recruiting historically. So you can still beat Alabama, but you really do have to jump up into this different category of, of your peers to be able to make it there. I think the reason both you and I are excited, Alan, is that we did level jump, so to speak, into a new tier this year. There's reason to believe we could jump into the second tier next year if things go right and that is important you're gonna have to have those kind of guys to make that happen well that ends part a for us jump on over to part b we're gonna discuss and break down the class with blake alderman let's say you just bought a house 
Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.